come a little closer, madam. I want to tell you about something your children will love. This is Ghouls Only Cast, a podcast about lesser-known films across all genres. Who wants to die for art? I told you, no more deaths in the house! Look at your paycheck. You've worked so hard. Where's it all going? Two jerks like me who spend it on nothing. (laughs) Hi everyone, this is Meg. Welcome to episode two of Ghouls Only Cast. Today the episode is Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. So thank you for your patience waiting for this to come out. Uh, Recently, the air was poisonous here and I couldn't talk very well. Hopefully my voice doesn't sound like shit anymore, but if it does, I'm sorry. You're just gonna have to deal with it. So, uh, while I talk about this movie, I'm just going to shorten it to The Fabulous Stains because I would like to not stutter as much as usual, so we're just gonna go with that one. (laughs) So this movie has a vibe of what I can only describe as like a fictionalized rockumentary. It's kind of like Breaking Glass or Times Square if you've seen those movies. I think it is really lovely shot. It kind of reminds me of when I was a kid and it just seemed like lights were a bit darker, wood paneling was everywhere. It just has like sort of a nostalgic feel to it. I just really love this movie and almost nobody that I know uh, talks about it or has ever seen it. So I'm going to talk about it today. So this movie was shot in 1980 on location in Johnstown, Pennsylvania and various parts of Vancouver, British Columbia, but it wasn't released until 1982. Uh, The movie deals with the misguided rise and fall of a band that revolves heavily just around a cult of personality. And the movie really feels like an effective commentary on how media hype can really dictate what fads we follow and who we choose to listen to regardless of how good something may be or not. It also touches on meaning making, like plugging your own interpretations into someone else's rants that you see on TV or the internet, uh, choosing to live your life identically to someone without you know, knowing who they even really are. A lot of this feels like it could be mainlined into critiques we have today about social media, YouTubers, influencers, etc. I know I said internet a few minutes before, but the internet wasn't around in 1982. Holy shit, could you imagine how horrible that would have been? I'm, I don't want to think about it. So The Fabulous Stains could really be summed up as just that. You know, it's the rise of an influencer who gets cancelled, but then, spoilers, seemingly rises again after a rebrand. And I know that sounds kind of bad, but the characters are actually really awesome and it's hard to not love them. Uh, if you're cool, anyway. Are you cool? I hope you are. So this film was directed by Lou Adler who has an extremely varied career that goes from record producer, film producer, he owns a label, he's a manager, he's a film director, and he co-founded and owns the super famous Roxy Theater in Hollywood. You would think that someone who wears so many hats would probably be biting off more than he could chew making a movie because directing movies is just so different from everything else that he does, but he only directed two movies in his career. So we've got this movie, The Fabulous Stains, and the cult classic that we all know, Cheech and Chong's Up in Smoke. And although I'm partial to Paul Rubin's appearance in Nice Dreams, Up in Smoke has got to be the best one, you know. (laughs) Uh, We have an interesting tie-in there. Pee Wee Herman, well the character of Pee Wee Herman was 
born, so to speak, on stage at the Roxy in Hollywood, and Cheech and Chong were signed to Lou Adler's label. So it's too bad that Cheech and Chong didn't get to visit Pee Wee's Playhouse. Jombie probably would have scared the shit out of them. Oh, I would love to see that movie or episode or whatever. So as an executive producer, he bought the American rights to a small stage show called Rocky Horror Show in 1975 and showed it in the States before having it turned into a film, insisting that the word picture be added into the title. And I just felt like that should be added um, simply because Rocky Horror Picture Show is a total behemoth now and it has contributed so much to pop culture and, you know, I, I feel like it would be a disservice if I talk about Lou Adler and I don't mention that. And so the film was written by Nancy Dowd under the pseudonym of Rob Morton. Very ugly, plain name. But I believe I read somewhere that she sometimes did this because male names garnered more respect. But I also read that she put a man's name because she was so pissed off about the ending of the script. Because there was a huge debate between her and Lou Adler about how the ending should play out. And Lou just had power there that she didn't. And I also read that she was groped by someone on set, and that's why she left and had her name omitted, which, you know, I don't know. I just read that from one place. I'm not sure which of these three reasons are correct. It could be one. It could be all of them. You know, only Nancy knows. So Nancy's written several screenplays, but the one I want to draw attention to is the 1977 cult classic, Slapshot. So that film takes place in a fictionalized town called Charlestown, Pennsylvania. It's just this really drab, industrialized place that's suffering economically. You know, it's, it's Rust Belt. And Slapshot mostly was shot in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which was home of one of the worst man-made disasters in American history in the late 1800s. And if you want to read about thousands of people dying because some rich assholes like Andrew Carnegie wanted to create a man-made lake on a mountain for other rich assholes, there's a great book by David McCulloch on the subject. You know, uh, don't get me started. That whole situation just pisses me off. But part of The Fabulous Stains was also shot in Johnstown because this movie starts in the fictional city of Charlestown. So if you've seen Slapshot, just know that The Fabulous Stains takes place in the same cinematic universe. I do recommend Slapshot. If you like sports films, it's a little too long, but it's a decent film. And... I did some looking in the year that Slapshot came out. There was actually another huge flood in Johnstown that killed a bunch of people too, but they still came back three years later to shoot there again for whatever fucking reason. Now, Nancy was aided in the screenwriting process by a woman named Catherine Kuhn, who was a former manager of The Clash. She was a writer for the UK publication Melody Maker, and she ran an agency that helped provide legal aid to incarcerated individuals on drug offenses. She was in the thick of the punk scene in the UK, and her knowledge of the bands and culture was her big contribution to the script. And speaking of The Clash, I didn't do this in the last episode, but I have to go down the list of all the people of note who are in this movie. This movie is fucking crammed full of famous actors before they were famous and just notable musicians in general. So let's go. Corinne Burns, our main character, is played by Diane Lane. She's one of those actresses who is just all over the place, not typecast, so there's a good chance that you've probably seen her in something. Uh, I think her most notable role I could find was a role on House of Cards. 
the TV show. But she was also Martha Kent in Batman v Superman, but we don't talk about that movie. Corinne's sister Tracy, who ends up playing guitar in the band, is played by Marin Cantor, who had a really brief career in film, but she was in The Loveless with a very young Willem Dafoe. And I just wanted to point that out because if you watch the movie, she does the weirdest fake southern accent I've ever fucking heard. It just blows Juliette Lewis and What's Eating Gilbert Grape out of the water. It's, it's astounding. Corinne and Tracy's cousin, Jessica, who prefers to be called Peg for some reason, uh, she plays bass and is played by none other than a 14-year-old Laura Dern, who literally everyone knows. I really don't have to explain who Laura Dern is. You have seen her. She's the only adult woman in Jurassic Park, for starters. Like, she's done tons of work with David Lynch. Uh, I'll go ahead and recommend a movie that she was in in the 90s called Citizen Ruth, where you can watch her huff paint for an hour if you feel like it. It's pretty entertaining. She just has a mammoth-sized career. My info here is a little bit mixed, but it seems that Laura sued for emancipation in order to work full-time in Canada for the Fabulous Stains, which her parents understood and accepted because they both are really notable actors in their own right. It's just such a surprise seeing her in this, especially since it's her first real speaking role in a film. I think her first actual role was a little girl eating ice cream in a Martin Scorsese movie. He just, you know, had like her do nine shots of her eating ice cream. He was like, wow, this kid should act. So the Stains are a supporting band in the film, playing alongside two bands, the Metal Corpses and the Looters. The Metal Corpses have two members of note that I'll point out, uh, both from a band called The Tubes, Fee Waybill and Vince Welnick. I've never really heard of them, but I can really just give Fee, Fee Waybill the lead singer props for actually being a pretty solid actor. He uh, wrote the Metal Corpses song for the film, which I'll, <laughs> I'll get into that later. The other band, as I said, is called The Looters. The lead singer is Billy, who's played by Ray Winstone, who I seriously love so much. He was just getting into his acting career, uh, coming off of some television in this film. Uh, he had pretty much only done a few films, like Scum and The Who's Quadrophenia, both co-starring Phil Daniels, who I also love. I can tie anything back to Blur if you give me a chance. <laughs> The Fabulous Stains was the first thing I ever saw Ray Winstone in, and I was seriously fucking shocked when I followed this movie up with The Proposition, which is another good film uh, that I recommend. It was written by Nick Cave as well, if you like Nick Cave. Uh, this movie is the smallest you were ever going to see Ray Winstone, which may be reason enough to watch it because this man turned into a fucking rhino when he got older. Um, I feel like no one else could have played his part in this film. He's just, you know, chef kiss. Mwah, he's perfect. The rest of the looters are played by Steve Jones and Paul Cook of the Sex Pistols, who had their own band called The Professionals after the Sex Pistols... I'm going to say the fucking imploded. <laughs> uh, the Looters songs are professional songs, but with Ray Winstone singing over them. Playing bass for the Looters is Paul Simonon from The Clash. Um, and I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't point out that he was also in The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. Like I said, I can relate anything back to Blur if you give me enough time. <laughs> Uh, I find this whole lineup to be absolutely incredible, even if you just find that these bands were cash grabs or not punk enough or whatever, it's just, it's fun to see. 
The tour manager is called Lawn Boy, who's played by reggae artist Barry Ford. He's most notably attached to, the, to a band called Merger, and he still performs to this day if you look him up. He provided some songs for the soundtrack, which really contrast starkly with the overall punk atmosphere of the film. And this was by design, because reggae was typically played at punk shows in the UK in between sets, or reggae artists were just billed alongside punk bands. Uh, this was because of the influx of new uh, Caribbean citizens, and to just add a little reprieve from all the noise and aggression of punk music. Uh, this ended up influencing a lot of bands. I mean, look no further than London Calling by The Clash, if we want to stay on topic. And it also helped birth new genres. So we can thank reggae in the UK for helping create post-punk, or we can hate reggae for having a hand in the birth of ska. I'm sorry if you like ska, please seek help. <laughs> That's enough preamble, let's go ahead and get into the plot. If you're sufficiently interested with what I've said and you want to go into this movie blindly, feel free to stop here. Otherwise, as usual, I'm going to give an in-depth rundown of the film and I'll point out anything along the way that might spoil the film. There aren't any twists or anything in the movie, but I'll just do my best anyway. So here we go. Ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. The movie opens on a news anchor who sits in a 60-minute style set and he tells the viewer that they may recall a teenage girl named Corinne Burns who was recently fired from her fast food job live on television. Uh, this outfit was doing some segment about how Charlestown is just a town that refuses to die. Uh, she just barks that in fact the town died years ago and that the reporter is dumb and holy shit, the kids love it. The reporter mentions that teens have been writing in letters in thousands and they're just like, dude, she's been talking like what my brain meat says to my mind and they just seem to really rally behind her. Similar to what you'd call going viral today, basically. The reporter then says that the camera crew went back to Charlestown to meet Corinne proper and this is our real introduction to her. She's smart-mouthed, sullen, pretty apathetic, and overall pretty fucking cool, I gotta say. Um, the reporter points out that she's an unemployed dropout, she's newly orphaned, and has a younger sister, also teenage, that she has to look after. And she doesn't seem to pay any mind while she puts on red eyeliner and just tells him not to call her Corinne Burns. Her name is Third Degree Burns. Hell yeah. The anchor seems kind of desperate to really point out that, you know, these girls are on the verge of being homeless, but she just doesn't really seem to give a shit. She just mentions that she's the lead singer and manager of her band, The Stains, and introduces her other bandmates, her sister and her cousin, babyface Laura Dern. The girls are called, respectively, Depleted and Dizzy Heights. You know that old line, girls just want to have puns. Corinne smiles, and the interview is over. So we're finally getting into the actual movie here. Corinne is walking in the rain to do a phone interview at her aunt's house. Her deceased mother's sister, who sits all day in pajamas at a table with her best friend, drinking booze out of coffee mugs, listening to the radio, and gossiping about people from 20 years ago. As you do. Uh, something weird in this part, when Corinne is walking up her aunt's driveway, a Johnstown flood control truck passes by her on the street, and I guess they just got lucky with this production that there was flood control that year, because the weather looks like shit. I don't know. Don't don't get me started on the Johnstown flood, I get so pissed off. 
I mean, fuck, it happened in Pennsylvania, and several years later they were finding bodies in Cincinnati. It's fucking insane. Okay. Anywho, uh, the two women are talking about Corinne's mother when she walks in, and immediately the aunt just starts heckling Corinne nonstop. Corinne just kind of brushes her off to make the phone call, but these two drunks just crank up the radio to sing horribly over it, thus ruining Corinne's chances at even getting a job. Then, the aunt picks on Corinne for not having a job. I just, I love families. I love families. The aunt starts bickering with Jessica for whatever reason insists on being called Peg. I mean, I understand if you're a huge Peggy Hill fan, she is a genius, but we're still like 17 years out from that. No one wants to be called Peg. The girls both leave and the aunt mentions that ever since Corinne's mom has died, she's been acting pretty crazy. I mean, wow, I wonder why. Maybe having two dead parents and living in abject poverty isn't the best fucking thing for the teenager. Uh, I don't like this woman. Corinne walks past what looks like a steelworks factory or something, fantasizing and pontificating about how she's in the best rock group in the world and she's gonna build a radio station, which quickly cuts to her in a music venue later that night. You really see here that being 1980 when this was shot, they were still firmly in like freaks and geeks territory. And I mean, I mean like how, you know, in Freaks and Geeks, it takes place in the early 80s, but everyone still dresses and behaves like it's the 70s. Like, the pure 80s aesthetic that we think of now is just not here in this movie. It's kind of interesting. But anyway, Corinne goes to the bathroom and we get, I'm sorry, the most unsung character in the fucking movie. This seriously pregnant teenage girl, like, she's like nine months pregnant. She might be like 12 months pregnant looking at her. Like, she's just uh, drinking from a mini bottle of vodka and just keeps repeating over and over, I get cravings for cake and ice cream. I threw up this morning. I just eat and eat and eat so much candy and cake and, and ice cream. It's like, I threw up this morning. <laughs> Everyone in the bathroom just seems to openly, absolutely hate her. <laughs> it's fantastic. Like, uh, Tracy walks in uh, to give some kind of pill to Corinne, and this girl just snatches it up out of her hand and swallows it like a fucking dog stealing a sandwich off a plate. It's incredible. So we cut to the concert at this part. Um, the concert's starting. The looters introduce themselves and start playing their go-to song in the film, Join the Professionals. Personally, I like Ray Winston's voice more than the original vocals and the version by The Professionals. He just naturally has this great edge to his voice. And if you've seen literally anything he's ever been in, he does uh, the whole angry thing very, very well. Uh, Corinne tries to hide it, but she's absolutely enchanted by this. Like She's actually smiling and moving with the crowd. Everyone else seems to really, really love this band. It's a legitimately good song, and I'm not just saying that. Like I actually do really, really like this song. Then, after, we get the headliner. The Metal Corpses. <sighs> There's this speech the singer gives before the song starts, and literally only one person in the whole crowd is excited. It's just this older woman that looks a little strung out and she just keeps going, woo, at weird intervals. 
Uh, he's just going on and on and on about how this song they had was number one for a few weeks and blah blah blah. You can already tell that no one is interested. If, if it was ever popular, its fortunes faded a long ass time ago. So at this point the lights go up and it's just a bunch of middle-aged dudes that all look like they showed up for different cover bands and got lost somewhere along the way. Like we got rip-off Kiss guy, we got a Cream Reject, I mean pick your poison here. They're playing a song that sounds like Kiss, if Kiss was somehow even hokier and that's a big fucking feat on its own if you ask me. Uh, this song's called Roadmap of My Tears. I honestly don't know what to make of it. Obviously it was made by talented guys, but it's intentionally really underwhelming and derivative. And it just has to be kissed because since this was made in 80, this was really before hair metal was a thing. So it's just a rip-off kiss song. But Ray Winstone's character is standing in the wings and just hurls insults at them and the audience looks like they would rather be at a funeral. So, um, Ray Winston's character, Billy, calls his, his agent and is clearly really pissed off, saying that they were told that this tour was going to basically put them on the map, but they're just touring shitty nowhere towns as a backup for old geezers. On stage, Roadmap of My Tears ends and no one claps. Not a single one. There's a Roadmap of My Tears and it spells out fucking horrible, am I right? After the show, the Metal Corpse's frontman, called Lou, goes to meet up with that ancient groupie that was going woo and uh, before leaving, tells the tour manager that the looters need to be replaced ASAP or they're going to fire him. Uh, Corinne, poor naive thing that she is, wanders backstage to find Billy and ask for advice. It seems that she really thinks that his band has hit the big time. And I honestly wonder how much this happens with small-scale touring bands. I mean, does it make you feel important or does it just kind of feel humiliating? I don't know. Billy certainly feels like it's the latter and just blows her off. And this is where she meets the tour manager, Lawn Boy. He recognizes her from the news and spins her a yarn about how he's just, you know, this famous uh, promoter and he's listened to so many bands to support the tour and the next thing we know the stains are booked and on the road with two hungover bands that fucking hate each other. Lou talks about his old groupie with his bandmate and this makes me want to fucking gag every time. He Oh, he talks about how she was so good she was as good as she ever was and it was like nectar man like nectar. Calling it nectar is so disgusting to me. I don't know why. Like, saying someone looks yummy grosses me the fuck out. And I just can't stand Lou. He's, he's a horrible human being. <sighs> but we get some road tripping scenes here for a little bit. And there's a fight between Lou and Billy. Soundtracked by some of Barry Ford's very catchy music as he drives there. I'm gonna say it. Fucking junkyard tour bus. It doesn't look good. It's on to the next podunk town for them, and it's the Stains' first show. Lomboy gives the girls these, like, catwoman slash gimp suits to wear on stage, which Corinne just tosses aside for a flasher's raincoat, red beret, and bold eyeliner. Um, looking not unlike Rick Mail and the young ones, actually. The girls go on stage, and they start to play, and they can't play. At all. Corinne has a really monotone growl that just absolutely drowns out the instrumentals that are like one chord. I mean, it's like one chord. I mean, at least the Ramones had three. 
The crowd is mostly silent, with some scattered shit talking when it's done, a few little laughs, and that really, really just pisses off Corinne. She takes off her beret to show off this really bizarre, like, skunk pelt hairdo that she's given herself. She singles out a woman that's, like, in the front of the crowd brushing her hair and just lays into her, like, pretty much projecting her own insecurities to the point where the woman's date throws a drink on Corinne's jacket. Corinne then takes off the jacket, and she's wearing a see-through blouse with no bra, fishnet pantyhose, and black panties pulled over the stockings. She just says, I'm perfect, but no one in this shithole gets me because I don't put out, and storms off. It's fucking iconic. Like, this movie just does not get the attention it deserves. It's so fucking cool. The whole look, the attitude, goddamn, Corinne fucking burns. I think I read somewhere that this movie had some hand in the Riot Girl movement, and it's very, very obvious. Uh, spoiler at this point, I guess. Um, yeah. The guitarist from the Metal Corpses has been looking like a hot, greasy basket of death this whole movie so far, and now his final form has been achieved. He's in his underwear, dead on a toilet, with a needle in his arm. Even in death, his band is fucking derivative. Needless to say at this point, the show is called off. They don't decide to do a weekend at Bernie's thing. Uh, guess the guy was the only one who knew how to play an instrument. Who knows? Uh, Corinne catches the eye of a news reporter that's on the scene and just tells a bunch of lies about the guitarist. And the reporter is just really enraptured with Corinne saying on air... Uh, when and where the next Stains show will be. Like, calling her, like, a fascinating person. Uh, the metal corpses are out, and the tour just kind of continues with uh, the looters headlining. And Billy, meanwhile, is still trying to negotiate things with the agent, but this time it's to get rid of the Stains because they can't play. However, at a subsequent show, it's very clear that the looters aren't who the crowd is coming to see. The stains are sounding a little bit better, Tracy and Peg have done their hair in like a half-bleached fashion, like Corinne's, and the news reporter and cameraman are there, like following them around, and in the crowd are a handful of girls at the show who are dressed just like Corinne. The looters are like suitably kind of freaked out by this, and there's a lot of infighting with them, and they drag Lonboy into it, where we learn that the only reason why Lonboy is doing this tour is because a member of his own band was busted for weed possession in California, and he doesn't have enough money to get him out, or it seems like he doesn't have enough money to get home. He isn't a famous promoter or anything like that, and he's just totally sick of all these bands' bullshit. Uh, Billy has stormed off to a motel where he hooks up with a maid, played by E.G. Daly. You may know her better as Dottie from Pee-wee's Big Adventure or the voice of Tommy Pickles. I just think that she's so adorable. It's so nice to see her in this. They're watching the news together when Billy sees the big news piece that's been put together about the stains. The reporter, who is shown as being sort of infantilized by her male co-host, uh, she just seems to inject a lot of her own meaning behind the things that Corinne says to her and says in the songs, making Corinne out to be almost like, I would say, a new feminist trailblazer and not just some misanthropic teenager who honestly has nothing more to lose. The reporter interviews one of the costume girls for television who has started calling herself a skunk, 
who says that Corinne just says things that she's always wanted to say. And that's why she's decided to be like her now. In action and in dress. I don't think I need to tell you why this is so poignant, even in this day and age. So Billy talks to Corinne the next day about how she's going to be something special someday. And, spoiler, hooks up with her after giving a sob story about how he can't read. And he tells her the lyrics to join the professionals. Billy takes Corinne and meets Billy's agent before their show, who is auditioning a band, just like he was asked to do. Uh, that band is Black Randy and the Metro Squad. It was just this really weird L.A. punk band that only put out one album. And that album was called Pass the Dust, I Think I'm Bowie. Uh, I couldn't figure out why he was called Black Randy. It seems that the band had a lot of issues because of Randy's drug problems, and he passed away a few years after his appearance here due to complications from AIDS. Uh, the song here that they perform is I Slept in an Arcade, which is admittedly a pretty fucking catchy tune, and it's just- Black Randy looks like he could be the Nexium cult leader's estranged cousin. I just- it's amazing. Uh, Corinne realizes that Black Randy was booked to replace her. She flips out and Billy beats up Black Randy and tells him to fuck off. Uh, rest in peace, Black Randy. The stains, you know, stay on, and the next show, for some weird reason, is at a heritage festival? I don't know, there's like a huge soft pretzel cart floating around and stuff. Oh god, I miss those things. I'm not buying frozen ones. I refuse. I mean, fuck you, 2020. I want my sports concession junk food back. Oh my god. Anyway, so there are tons of skunks everywhere. Uh, more than anyone else at this festival, they, like, this thing literally blew up overnight. The stains are, you know, still just opening for the looters. They play Join the Professionals. It's hard to say if Corinne was planning on doing this anyway, or just decided to do it as just a supreme fuck you to Billy. Uh, their version of Join the Professionals has, uh, not, the, like, the lyrics, not me, interspersed here and there, because the song is about being drafted into Vietnam. And as any girl who has ever even heard the word feminism before, you know, you've had to contend with someone telling you that women have never faced, you know, true oppression because they don't have to sign up to be drafted. We know. We get it. The draft shouldn't exist in the first place. Oh my god, if I had to sign up, I, I would. Can we please move on from this? Jesus fucking Christ. Anyway, the betrayal of them playing Meet the Professionals works beautifully. The stains are on the news yet again. And now the little news reporter has these tiny little uh, red eyeliner wings that she has. It's just, oh, it's very, very cute. I'm not even lying. Like, she just, she's all into it. Um, so this time the reporter interviews Peg's mom and Billy's agent decides that he's just going to jump on the stain wagon at this point. Uh, the stain wagon is a term that I have coined and no, you may not refer to anyone's mom as that. So now the stains are headlining and they have dumped Lawn Boy for Billy's agent, they book a fucking stadium show next. Like, as far as we know, they only have two songs, and one of them isn't even theirs. They don't have a record, they don't have nothing. Like, it's just, it's insane. But, you know, it, it draws in a huge crowd. And it seems like the biggest draw of all is the merch booth, 
which is mostly uh, Corinne costumes, basically, and little plushy skunks. Uh, girls stand in the crowd waiting for the concert with, you know, wet dye in their hair. They have their scalps bleached and they're just laden down with merch boxes that look identical to Sephora bags, if I'm being honest. Uh, Corinne snubs Billy when he confronts her on what she's done, read the little, you know, whole song and tour stealing mishap. And we see that the looters are in the process of being replaced by the darling Mexican Randy. Which is just Black Randy in a mariachi costume. Very cute. The looters then, you know, take the stage. Corinne tells them, you know, yeah, they can open for us. And they're booed to the point where Billy essentially does what Corinne did at the Stains first show. Pointing out to all the girls what suckers they are for buying all the hype around Corinne. And what capitalist little piggies they are. Oink, oink. He's primed the audience, so the stains obliviously come on stage to total fucking silence. Corinne essentially gives the mommy dearest, my wonderful fans speech, and they, <laughs> they don't take too kindly to it. The stains start to play Join the Professionals until a girl storms the stage to attack Corinne, calling her a phony, a la fucking Mark David Chapman, uh, a girl who is shown... Uh, following the stains from their very first show actually throws hair dye at Corinne's face and that's it for the show. Corinne threatens the agent until he gives her her cut of the money that she's owed and she just leaves, giving it all to Lawn Boy so that he can get his friend out of prison. Corinne is shown at the news station talking to the female reporter's co-host where he essentially just chastises her, points out that her rising star is already burnt out and no one really cares about her anymore. She leaves pretty dejected, and Billy catches up with her and tries to get her to go back on tour with the looters, but just as his girlfriend, which she flat out refuses to do. It seems like she just has absolutely nothing now, until she sees a bunch of skunks in the parking lot listening to a concert recording on the radio. It freeze frames there, and that's where the big fight between Lou Adler and Nancy Dowd really came to a head. Nancy wanted the ending to show that Corinne was done, but across the pond in the UK, girls were starting to dress like skunks, and another band inspired by the stains rises to the fame that Corinne wanted. Lou didn't like that, uh, so the movie just kind of collected dust for over a year until he shot, you know, a music video-esque ending where the stains perform a fully produced studio version of Join the Professionals under Lawn Boy's own label. Uh, it's a much more positive ending. It has little dance numbers and costuming between footage of them performing and has overall a more new wave tilt to the song. The girls were all, you know, obviously older here. The signature aesthetic is all gone and the hair and the costume and everything. It's just kind of a cobbled together mess, but it has the hope there that these girls didn't have to return to poverty and never achieve anything as musicians. And you know, that's the movie. The movie is incredible. I think that it is such an inadvertently influential thing that just stays on the pulse of you know, culture, whether it's the 80s or today. There are so many things in this film that ring truer today, possibly even then. You know, I think that a lot of us want to be like a Corinne Burns or to follow a Corinne Burns on, you know, social media or something like that. You know, it's 
the whole concept to have something blow up literally overnight and then be quickly forgotten when it's found tasteless shortly after or people just aren't interested, like viral videos or just memes in general. Um, I didn't really point this out, but, you know, in this whole time with the whole news reporter and everything, it's just within the tri-state area. You know, it's such a, like, little blip right there. I mean, I can go on and on and on, but I feel like I've said enough during this whole thing. Uh, this film opened to very little fanfare. Unfortunately, it wasn't very well liked. It wasn't even shown in many theaters, and it mostly languishes today. It's out of print on DVD, and so far has never been reissued on Blu-ray, which is just such an injustice that I feel like it's borderline criminal. Uh, you know, if we can have a Blu-ray for fucking Microwave Massacre, I mean, can't we have a Blu-ray for this one? I feel like it's not a huge ask. Uh, the film gained some cult notoriety um, a while back from being shown frequently on Night Flight back in the day. Uh, I've never seen Night Flight, but it sounds fucking incredible. But, you know, hopefully this movie can get some more love now and in the future, you know, the only thing is you just need to watch it. I really, really recommend this movie. It's great. If you don't have a local video store, you can rent or purchase this movie on Amazon, YouTube, iTunes, uh, probably more that I couldn't even find. Uh, if you like the movie Smithereens, uh, Times Square, Breaking Glass, or even like Spinal Tap, uh, you'll probably like this movie. I cannot recommend it enough. I just, I love it. I have a Corinne Burns sticker in my shop. Uh, please check it out. It supports the show. Uh, I'd love to sell you one. Join me on my next episode where a guy named Connor and I are going to be discussing the 1982 remake of Cat People. And we're going to put out some fires with gasoline. So thank you for listening. Uh, don't put out. Thank you. for listening to Ghouls Only Cast. Lightly written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg. Music by Dan Lucas. Follow me on Instagram at Ghouls Only Press. You can support this podcast by supporting my shop, ghoulsonlypress.com. Stay cool, ghoul.